You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Gil has me down for nine weeks in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. And so I'm kind of taking it slow, but I'd like today to introduce it with the Sermon on the Mount in the Secular Age and then just go through the sermon as a whole, probably fairly quickly. And then through the summer in a variety of different settings, the Dean's class for a couple and here in the library for the rest. Sure. Thanks, Dennis. Go through it more slowly. And actually, this um, this last page, or this first page, the Sermon on the Mount in the Secular Age, I put together yesterday, so it's kind of fresh for me, and it'll be interesting to see how you uh, respond to it. Let's begin with prayer. Lord God, thank you for gathering us together in worship this morning. Thank you for the, the gift of your grace that allows us to do that in the Spirit. And we ask now that your presence would be felt by us as we study your word. We thank you, Lord, for the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit to bring glory to the Father in the name of the Son. Amen. We hear uh, the Sermon on the Mount uh, differently than the first disciples heard it. Uh, we live in a very different age than they lived in. And so we have to be attuned to the fact that our hearing is different, our mind is different. Um, some of our best scholars today are talking about the fact that we live in a, in a very secular age. Secular, not just in the differences in what we believe, but in how we come about our beliefs. So the whole plausibility structures, what's plausible. In the 1500s, it was kind of unbelievable not to believe in God. In the, 20, in the 21st uh, century, it's difficult to believe in God. And even if you believe in a higher being or in some sort of spirituality or some form of transcendence, to believe in the living God who's revealed himself, who's given us his name, and who is known by the incarnate one, Jesus Christ, that's a tough sell. That's hard to believe. Charles Taylor is a Roman Catholic who wrote uh, a tome, almost a thousand pages on the secular age, and James K.A. Smith, a professor of philosophy at um, Calvin College, has kind of broken it down, and he's written a much smaller book as a kind of reading guide for Charles Taylor's uh, The Secular Age, in which he tries to help us understand why it's so difficult for people to believe in God and to believe in Christ today. 
you'll notice on this page, we live in a cross-pressured situation, suspended between the malaise of imminence and the memory of transcendence. Do you see what I'm looking at the page with the pictures that you can hardly make out? We live in a cross-pressured situation, suspended between the malaise of imminence and the memory of transcendence. In other words, now everything's in the moment. And our mind is the source of our sense of meaning and purpose. Meaning isn't outside of us, as understood in this culture today, but it is the meaning that we create, we generate. But we have the memory of transcendence. We have the memory of spirituality. And there's the conflict there. This is different. This is not how people have thought before. They have thought before that meaning is in the outside. And we need to discover it. We need to comprehend it. But what is happening today is a sense that I generate that meaning. I'm the one who finds purpose. I'm the one who creates a sense of uh, significance. That's what's changed. So we hear Jesus' sermon with a set of assumptions and perspectives. I'm using we uh, in general here in the culture, not we, you specifically as a confessing Anglican believer in Christ. But we as a culture, we hear Jesus' sermon with a set of assumptions, perspectives, and attitudes shaped by our life situation. But no matter how this sermon is heard, it runs counterculture. I think when the uh, first disciples heard this sermon, uh, that they, uh, they heard it as a countercultural message, just like you and I in our 21st century culture hear it as a countercultural message. I think wherever Jesus said this, in whatever culture it's heard, runs counter to the culture. So it wasn't consistent with that first century culture either. And part of our thinking is that we need to read it as hearing it, as Jesus spoke it and meant it to be understood, rather than simply out of our own perspective, attitude, frame of reference. So the dissidence between what Jesus meant and how we hear it needs to sort of be explored and understood. Now, to set this up, Bishop Curry's message, have any of you... Did any of you watch that, listen to it? Um, it's interesting to perceive, because this helps, I think, to illustrate the point that we're trying to make here. That's gotten mixed reviews. Some people were just thrilled with it. And I put here a quote from Rabbi Zachariah, who's a very conservative evangelical uh, apologist and evangelist. And... Uh, he writes, well-known American evangelist, Rabbi Zacharias, if you see where I'm reading, he praised it. The message preached by Bishop Michael Curry was extraordinary. Few speakers in the world can match the eloquence and passion of the African-American preacher. One is riveted to every word. I believe a wounded person in a wounded culture tells of the wounded Savior the best. The world heard the gospel that day. Thank you, Bishop Curry. Well, Rabbi Zacharias, hearing this, 
And I think Bishop Curry mentioned maybe 55 times the love of Jesus in that message. It was permeated with Jesus and with love and with God's love. And he used redemptive and romantic. And uh, But Rabbi Zechariah hears it out of the assumption of the gospel of Jesus Christ that Jesus is not just a great example, but he is the object of faith. And that love is not just a feeling or a positiveness or a kindness toward others, but love that is redemptive has been fundamentally sacrificial with the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's how Rabbi Zechariah hears Michael Curry preach. The Queen's own former chaplain, the Reverend Dr. Gavin Ashton, summed it up as Christianity light. He wrote, and he was the Queen's chaplain for a good 15 years. It was a piece of a piece de resistance example of the vacuous variety of faith, which Richard Niebuhr so forensically described as consisting of a God without wrath who brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. In another article, Ashton said, there is a civil war raging at the moment in Anglicanism and elsewhere between progressive Christianity that takes its priorities from the zeitgeist, the present culture, and a faithful orthodox belief that keeps with what Jesus taught in the Gospels. The primate of the American Episcopal Church is fighting classically orthodox Christians over a biblical view of marriage. And people are being kicked out of their churches. And here's the primate of the Episcopal Church giving a sermon on love with a very different understanding of what it means to obey Jesus and his teachings in the gospel. You see what I mean by the context of a sermon and how a sermon is understood with a set of assumptions and perspectives and attitudes and situated in a cultural context. We live in a secular age. I should have numbered these because then I could draw your attention to the specific paragraph, but this way you just have to find it. We live in a secular age where believing does not come easy. Belief in God is one option among many. And it's not the primary option anymore. Exclusive humanism, expressive individualism are the radically new options in the marketplace of beliefs. A vision for life in which anything beyond the imminent, the immediate, the moment is eclipsed. So what's changed? to make belief in God in Christ so difficult. Let me make a few suggestions from, from the readings in Charles Taylor's Secular Age and in James K.A. Smith's small book. Number one, our view of the person has changed. We've moved from a body and soul in community to a kind of imperial self, an isolated self. The terms that Charles Taylor uses for this is the porous self, porous being open, receptive, open to an outside world, 
small in relationship to this great cosmos, that porous self, as opposed to the buffered self. Now, that's his term. I feel like it always needs explanation, like a buffered aspirin. There's a coating. There's a protection. There's an insulation. There's an isolation. The self today is a buffered self. I'm defensive to outside authorities and to an outside world. I've kind of protected myself. I've drawn myself into a shell. I am creating what I think is significant, purposeful, and meaningful. And so you have the poorest self and the buffered self. And in this 21st century secular age, we have that insulated, protected, buffered self. Turn the page if you would. Number two, our view of society. We've moved from a kind of societal village to a collection of individuals. Let's just let that stand. Number three, our view of human flourishing. Do you remember the Seinfeld show? Okay, part of the classic American understanding, right? Well, you know, it was a show that it was di- designed, it was really re- ironic because it was a show about nothing, as they explained it. And it was about nothing, but it really is a very telling parable of the nature of our culture that we live on this sort of flat land, moment by moment. Nothing really rises transcendently in terms of meaning and purpose. Uh, that sort of Seinfeld syndrome it characterizes the lowering of the bar for human flourishing. Uh, you know, a good date is transcendence in the Seinfeld world. And that's all there is. Well, now what was began as kind of an ironic, comedic situation is kind of standard fare. Number four, our view of time. We've moved from the fullness of time, kairos time, grace-filled time, to chronos tick-tock time. There's no other time in the secular age than tick-tock time. There's not a kind of outside kairos moment. We're not looking for that anymore. And then five, our view of the world. We've shifted from the cosmos to the universe, from creation to nature. Those five ways of looking at the person, looking at society, looking at human flourishing, looking at the world, looking at time, all of that does an impact on how we perceive, how we understand. We've gone from everyone believing in God to the courage to face the fact that the universe is without transcendent meaning. Now, the first philosopher to sort of take that all the way to its bitter conclusion was Nietzsche and Nietzsche's nihilism. And that there really is only the hunter and the hunted. There is only the will to power Uh, And he despised Christianity for its weakness. Um, He could not say, and he knew Christianity quite well. Um, I'm not up on him right now, but two years ago, I read three of his works to tie it into the book of Revelation. And uh, Nietzsche did know Christianity very well, and yet ridiculed it, mocked it. 
But we can't live in a state of simply will to power and despair. And therefore, we invent other things to cushion the blow in the secular age so that we don't go in the direction of Nietzsche. But the quote from Smith, the courage to face the fact that the universe is without transcendent meaning, without eternal purpose, without supernatural significance, materialism equates with maturity. This is what makes me so concerned about our university students because they live in a milieu that equates maturity with materialism. You've given up the notions of transcendence, of a God authority. That's no longer believable. They live in a milieu in which that's just commonly understood. And those that are within the university community that believe otherwise are often very shy and timid about actually talking about their belief. In this new age of expressive individualism, and wouldn't Kate Spade be sort of an icon for expressive individualism within our culture? And wouldn't Anthony Bourdain sort of be an icon for the age of authenticity? I mean, what is being said about Anthony Bourdain? That he was always honest, truthful, he always, you got the real person, um, that he was concerned for marginal people, he was concerned for the people who actually do the cleaning in, in restaurants, and that he brought them to the fore and, and attended to them. The world traveler, the hedonist that we all watched, um, and sort of took pleasure in his pleasure. Uh, but no transcendent meaning, no significance or purpose outside of what he himself is generating and creating, uh, a wonderment with the human condition, uh, and bringing that to light. Always enjoyed watching him. Yeah. But I think this week we've also seen something of the downside of exclusive humanism, of expressive individualism. The two icons that have made it in every way that the world would uh, understand making it in terms of significance and, and purpose and, and uh, fame and recognition and, and really being decent people within that sort of expressive individualism and exclusive humanism kind of world. But finding it necessary to end their life um, you know, speaking into this need, into this culture, uh, is something that we should not fear. Uh, we shouldn't withdraw and become isolated uh, and protective and defensive of our faith. Um, we really should be comfortable and bold, thankful, grateful, Something of the, the beauty of transcendence and of a God who has spoken and the revelation of God is something to be not ashamed of or embarrassed of or quiet of, but sort of confident in, courageous in. Um, all this to say is we want to hear the Sermon on the Mount with ears and eyes and mind and heart that are open to what Jesus is saying. 
and not do a kind of cultural wash over what is being said. Um, thoughts, ideas? It's always fascinating to hear you talk. <laughs> Did you hear that, Virginia? I thought I'd do the quip before she did. Um, could, I, could I throw something out there? My concern with Taylor, and I don't want to make this exclusively about him, right? but if this is a profound criticism of the Enlightenment, at least I feel that it is, and I feel like it's really difficult for Christians to, to make that criticism without also criticizing all of the really, really good positive things that came out of that, like private property and rule of law and free markets that have led to the spread of the gospel and allowed us to manage religious differences without killing each other and have seen the increase in human prosperity in, in a basic way. You know, we're living on $9,000 a year as opposed to $1,000 a year. Um, how do we how do we thread that needle where we say there there are things that maybe got lost in the shuffle and the church can speak into that, but let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater because that's not too far afield. Oh, that's not too far afield. It's a little too deep for me. But uh, <laughs> I, you know, Taylor is writing as a Roman Catholic, and uh, he certainly would see the Reformation along with the Enlightenment as leading us down that secular path. And with that, I think he's shy about drawing the kind of positive attributes that came out of the Reformation, came out of the Enlightenment, that freed us up, freed us from superstition. You know, a, a big distinction here between... That's why I'm uncomfortable with the word of enchantment. He loves that word, you know, that what we've done is disenchant the world. And to me, it's never been about enchantment. Um, and that there is much in an, a real biblical theology that does free us up, frees economies up, frees scientists up, frees law up, um, if we stay true to the, the scriptures. Now that's a big picture. And, you know, I'm also intrigued by where Taylor ends up, because Taylor ends up in such a way that Michael Curry's sermon has real place in a kind of nostalgic nominalism that um, there is a spirituality that is hungered for apart from religion. And somehow we cannot get away from that. Um, that's why the, you know, the idea of, of Romans 2.15, that the pagans have to acknowledge the law of God and that the invisible attributes of God are clearly seen by the things that are made uh, from Romans 1. We still bank on that. Uh, in the secular age, with all that we've said about expressive individualism and exclusive humanism, we still bank on the fact that we're soulful creatures, that we're made in the image of God. And there's a residency in all people of this sense of the transcendent and not this reductionistic, kind of dehumanizing view of the person that you are your own God, in a way making up things as you go.
Um, but that's, we could talk for a long time on that. Um, yeah. Sure. Forgive my ignorance, but when was, when, when did Taylor write this? Oh, I think he won the Templeton Award for it in 2007. Okay. So it's. So then my next question is I mean, I agree with, I, I believe, I mean, this is all true, but I guess what my answer would be is what would he say to, you know, Ecclesiastes? Like, there's nothing new under the sun. This cycle of in whatever way you want to fashion it, people trying to be their own God is, mm-hmm. is endless and has gone on for eternity. And so what would he, I mean, to me this is just a new iteration of sin, and or not even a new iteration of sin, but just, it's you know, this notion that we can, you know, save ourselves and we don't need community or in Christian community. I don't know that it's necessarily a new phenomenon. What would he say to that? I think, well, I kind of think he would agree with you. He might agree with you more than James K. Smith would agree because um, the Calvin philosopher really wants to emphasize that we're really at a different place and that Acts 17, Paul in Athens refuting the Athenians is not a comparable passage to today. Now, I want to push back on that because I think as you say Ecclesiastes is a timely book in relationship to what we're talking about here Um, bring that book into the secular age discussion and I think you've got um, whoever taught well Solomon claims it uh, the teacher is presenting the kind of argument of expressive individualism well illustrated and exclusive humanism well illustrated and the despair that that brings and yet it's a faith perspective because I think all along the bottom line is faith brings meaning. Faith in God and in his revelation brings meaning. And that's embedded, although it's kind of the minority report in that book. Um, I guess what I would say, I just don't, I don't know that this, this generation in our world has come up with a new way to sin. And I don't think like, I mean, they're new shiny toys or whatever. Yeah. But I think, you know, that lostness is not... That doesn't mean that it's not worth doing something about, but I don't think that that it's anything new or special. But it it does mean that our Bible studies and our preaching and our teaching and our education for our children and how we have devotions needs to be understood in the light of a pervasive difficulty that people have to believe. And I think we have to have empathy for the difficulty of believing that I think is a little different maybe than the last you know than uh, in the 1850s Um, did people you know but another (laughs) uh, positive point I think in that is did we have a lot of just nominal religion where it was just part of the culture part of Christendom part of the milieu and therefore I sign on to God but I really it's not what impacts my life. Right, it's not transformative right. for me. And that's why I think, in some ways, I like the idea of we're going back to the first century, mm-hmm. uh, to the, in a sense, the newness of this faith in a world that is antithetical to it. And, and it's fresh, it's renewing, it's invigorating, it's real. Uh, and I think that, that's a really positive 
understanding of where we're at, rather than us despairing. We got five minutes, seven minutes. Let's do the Sermon on the Mount in five minutes. It's a little hard to do that, but um, you've got your your sheet, and I'll just keep I'll just keep making copies of this and bringing them. Um, but and the reason I would the reason it's important to do this right at the outset is because when I've taught the Sermon on the Mount in the lay academy, it's often been understood by some people that attend in the class that the Sermon on the Mount consists of the Beatitudes. Well, it does consist of the Beatitudes, but a whole lot more. It's Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Um, and the Beatitudes is an eight-character, it's a description with eight attributes to describe the character of the Christian. And as we study the, the Beatitudes together, I'll make the point that this is not what merits grace, it is the expression of grace. To be poor in spirit, to mourn for your sin, uh, to, to uh, be peacemaker is, is an expression of the grace of God. So it's a, a grace-based character description of the disciple. And then the identity of salt and light. You're salt of the earth, you're the light of the world. You get ten attributes of the mature Christian right there. The eightfold beatitude description, beatitude-based belief, with uh, a two-part identity description, um, and that's followed by seven commands, uh, where the fulfillment of the law uh, is expressed um, in visible righteousness. And so you've got the tenfold description. And then you've got seven commands where Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I say to you. And those flow. Love instead of hate. Purity instead of lust. Fidelity instead of infidelity. Honesty instead of dishonesty. Reconciliation instead of retaliation. And finally, prayer instead of revenge. So you've got the character description. And then you've got a description of the seven commands, which are essentially the visible righteousness, the social righteousness, love instead of hate, prayer instead of revenge. That's a description of how the world sees us. And how the world sees us takes precedent over that hidden righteousness of praying and giving and fasting. You see that? You've got a character description of the believer. I wish I could write this out, sort of. Beatitudes and salt and light, followed by seven commands. You've heard it said, but I say to you, and this is how the world perceives you. The love instead of hate, the fidelity instead of infidelity, the purity instead of lust. That's how the world is meant to see the Christian, followed then by the hidden righteousness of giving and praying and fasting. And who's supposed to see that? Your Heavenly Father. Not the world necessarily, which is how we've, we reverse it. We put the spirituality in front and then the sort of visible social righteousness, maybe we get to that. Uh, but the Sermon on the Mount has the character, the visible righteousness, the hidden righteousness, and then that is followed by beginning in treasures in heaven, by goals, prohibitions, and freedoms in the Christian life. Uh, some of us were raised in Christian households that stressed the do-nots. Well, here are the great do-nots. These are the do-nots that we should have been raised on. Um, 
and we'll we'll discuss that. Do not worry. Uh, do not judge. Do not give dogs what is sacred. One of our more difficult sayings, probably. And then finally, in the last page there, ask, seek, and knock is a series of imperatives where Jesus says, this is what you must do. Ask, and it will be given unto you. Enter through the narrow gate. Discern true and false prophets. Don't be a false disciple. Probably one of the most, verse 21 on the last page, is probably the most sobering word in the sermon. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. And then a closing picture. You know, one of the things, you if you just were to read through this and take a red pen and circle all the metaphors, all the images, all the parables, Jesus really spoke in a, in a very, I use this as um, a kind of prime example of a really good sermon in my preaching class. And uh, it's a 12-minute sermon. Michael Curry's sermon for the wedding was 13 minutes. So this wins. Um <laughs> It's more Anglican than his Anglican. Um, but a 12-minute sermon, if you sit down and read it, and yet I don't think you and I could ever exhaust it in a lifetime of trying to understand it and in the spirit apply it. It's that demanding of us. But it's demanding in the best sense, in a good sense. So um, that's the Sermon on the Mount. We'll, we'll kind of work through it uh, in the summer. So if you're here... And you see where I am in the library dealing with the Sermon on the Mount. You're most welcome to join this discussion. Let's pray. Lord God, please send us into this week with a sense of your presence and also your call to be faithful, to be faithful presence in a world that uh, is challenged and is looking for answers. We do pray for... uh, for so many people that are particularly personally moved by the loss of Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain. And we pray that that might uh, not only uh, light up um, suicide watch lists, um, phone centers, but that it would also lead people into the discussion of what is significant, what is purpose, what is meaning in this world. And how do we achieve it? How do we receive it? We pray, Lord, for your work in your church, among your people, for your glory and honor. In the name of Christ, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.